This is Ron Taylor, the Rambling Boy, broadcasting live from Marfa Public Radio in downtown Marfa on this beautiful Friday in February. This week, the Rambling Boy is attempting to answer some of the very tough questions that have been called into KRTS Marfa Public Radio as a result of the station's West Texas Wonders series. Sally Beauvais is joining me on the program today and is most welcome. Hi, Sally. <laughs> Hi, Lon. Uh, our listeners probably already know about West Texas Wonders at this point, but just to explain, this is our series where uh, you write in or call in your questions about anything you want to know related to West Texas, and we attempt to answer them in the form of radio stories. And it just turns out that a lot of West Texans are curious about things having to do with history. So Lon Taylor is our, our resident historian here, and he's going to take on some of these questions for y'all. Fortunately, the rambling boy has lots of friends to call on for help in finding the answers to these questions. And we are happy to share those answers with KRTS listeners this morning. So, Lon, let's start uh, with this question. You called it deceptively simple, and I'm curious what you mean by that. It comes from Susan Keir of Marfa, and she wants to know why several of the old houses on Sacramento Street in Marfa have two front doors. Well, the fact is that a lot of houses have two front doors. It is a very old building tradition in America, and its origin is something that people who study vernacular architecture, which means buildings that were not designed by architects but just follow customary forms, have wrangled about for years. Most scholars agree that the two-front-door house was a German tradition brought to Pennsylvania in the 1700s, and that originally one door went into a formal public room, such as a parlor, and the other door went into a private, more utilitarian space, such as a kitchen with a cooking fireplace and maybe even a bed. What no one can agree on is why the form became so popular how it spread across the country, and why it prevailed into the 1940s, even though both doors frequently opened into the same room. The rambling boy holds with the climatic theory. The extra door provided additional ventilation in the summertime, which would explain the prevalence of the form in the South. I'll bet that extra door in those houses on Sacramento Street is still welcome in May and June. You know, Lon, I have two doors to my house. They're not both on the front. I have a south-facing door and an east-facing door, but I'll have to test out your theory in the summertime about well, cooling off the house. you'll get a nice cross breeze. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that tip. Our next question comes from Austin Fay of Marfa, and he wants to know when the last bighorn sheep was seen in Big Bend. Well, the short answer to that question could be yesterday, uh, depending on where you might be, because since 1971, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has been engaged in a program to repopulate certain regions of the Big Bend with desert bighorn sheep, translocated from other places. And today, there are about 1,300 bighorns in the Big Bend. 
But if Austin is referring to the original native desert bighorn sheep of the Trans-Pecos, which were extirpated before the Parks and Wildlife Repopulation Program began, the answer may lie in the junior historian files at the Marfa Public Library. In 1975, a Marfa High School student named Paula Kilpatrick wrote a paper entitled The Extension and Return of Bighorn Sheep in Texas for Lee Bennett's American History Class. Now, Miss Kilpatrick was the daughter of Jack Kilpatrick, a wildlife specialist who managed the Elephant Mountain Wildlife Refuge Area for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And she interviewed her father for her paper, which is preserved in the junior historian files. She says that the last native desert bighorn sheep were sighted in the Sierra Diablo, north of Van Horn, about 1960. The rambling boy checked this date with John Cargis, wildlife specialist for the Texas Nature Conservancy, who knows more about the critters of the Big Bend than anyone except the critters themselves. And Cargis replied that the last documented sighting was a remnant herd of 14 animals in the Sierra Diablo in 1958. Froilin Hernandez, the present leader of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Desert Sheep Program, puts the date at October 1957 in the Sierra Diablo. So there you have an answer narrowed to within 36 months, which is about the best the rambling boy can do. Nothing is certain in the Big Ben. <laughs> you know, I bet Paula Kilpatrick had no idea that her high school paper would resurface on the radio decades that later. Something? That's something. Okay, next question. It yeah. comes from a man named David A. Dunn of Oakland, Mississippi. He wants to know how the toenail trail over in Tom Green and Schleicher counties got its name. Well, according to Cody Moberly, the superintendent at Fort McAvich State Historic Site, the Toenail Trail is the local name for Farm to Market Road 2084, which runs from Cristoval to Fort McAvitt and used to be part of the old wagon road that connected Fort Concho to Fort McAvitt. The conventional wisdom around Cristoval and Fort McAvitt is that the road was originally called that because it cut across the Toenail Ranch. Now, Dale Huggins, one of the present owners of the Toenail Ranch, told the rambling boy that the ranch takes its name from an incident in the 1880s, shortly after the ranch was founded, when someone asked one of the owners what the new ranch was called. Don't have no name, he replied. Why, all ranches have names, his interrogator said. Why doesn't yours? Well, the owner replied, we're just hanging on to this land by our toenails. Guess we haven't had time to think up a name. And so it became the Toenail Ranch. And so it was written into history forever, the Toenail Ranch. All right, Lon, this is our last question today. It comes from Trisha Runyon of Presidio. 
And she says that as a child, she and her friends used to hunt for buried treasure um, in the ruins of Fort Leeton before it became a state park. And she wants to know if there's any record of anyone ever actually finding any buried treasure along the Chihuahua Trail, which you've informed me uh, was the main road from Chihuahua City to San Antonio from 1839 until the 1890s. And it crossed the Rio Grande near Fort Leeton. Well... You know, people have searched for treasure in the Southwest ever since Francisco Vasquez de Coronada, spurred by Hernan Cortez's fabulous discoveries in Mexico, wandered around the high plains in the 1540s looking for the seven golden cities of Cibola. So far as the rambling boy knows, Cortez is the only one who ever found anything. The two Bibles of the Chihuahua Trail are August Santleben's book, A Texas Pioneer, published in New York in 1910, and Roy Swift and Levitt Corning Jr.'s Three Roads to Chihuahua, published in Austin in 1988. Santleben's book is a memoir of his 20 years as a freighter on the Chihuahua Trail starting in 1867. He describes his trains of 12 four-wheeled wagons, each carrying 10,000 pounds of freight and each drawn by 14 mules. And he describes the cargoes he carried, mostly textiles and hardware from San Antonio to Chihuahua City, and mostly wool and sacks of silver pesos on the way back although he once hauled a 3,000-pound meteorite bound for the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia from Chihuahua to the railroad in San Antonio. But nowhere in his book does he mention buried treasure or mention even losing anything on the road. Swift and Corning go into great detail about water holes and stopping places and campsites, and they even describe a circus that went down the trail to Chihuahua City, but not a word about buried treasure. But don't let that discourage you, Tricia. You might be the one to find it. Thanks for answering our questions today, Lon. Thank you, Sally. You've been listening to The Rambling Boy. I'll be back next Friday at 11 o'clock with another story about Texas. In the meantime, remember that you can read The Rambling Boy every Thursday in the Big Men Sentinel. This program was made possible by a generous grant from the Summerlee Foundation's program in Texas history. And have a great time at Mardi Gras, Sally. <laughs> Thank you, Lon. <laughs>